You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome into World Soccer Talk's Soccer Morning right here. Live and ready to go on a Wednesday, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. What a time to be alive. Maybe not the best time to be alive if you're a U.S. men's national team fan. I mean, it's great to be alive. Let's be thankful that we're alive, but things not going well in the world of the U.S. men's national team. We'll get into all of that. We'll talk about Mexico today as they continue their domination in the CONCACAF region. Saw something from our friend uh, Tom Marshall on Twitter. They are current owners of the CONCACAF titles in the U-17, U-20, U-23, and senior levels. So it's a good time to be a Mexico fan. (laughs) Not so good a time to be a U.S. national team fan. All right, so lining this up today, Eric Gomez joining us at 910. Get into him, into everything Mexico with Eric, as always. Look into the success of the program, where things set, sit as Tuca Ferretti exits stage left and Juan Carlos Osorio takes over. We also have on this program at 940 a.m. Eastern time, John Townsend a writer who's been published at These Footy Times, The Guardian Sport, and a couple other places. I imagine John and I will have a healthy debate on the structure of American soccer right now. I figure we'll have some common ground, but uh, if, you been following, if you've been following me on Twitter, you know where this started. But to give, we're going to give John plenty of platform to get his views out, and we'll have a discussion. It's part of why Soccer Morning exists, so we can do these things. Very excited for today's show. Two very good guests. Lots of news, lots of things to cover, and we'll probably take some phone calls at the uh, on the backside of those two guests. Let's start with the news in European qualifying. The Dutch are out, finished third at the World Cup in 2014. They have been eliminated from the European Championships after losing 3-2 to two at home to the Czech Republic last night in Holland. Not good for Danny Blind and company. Uh, down uh, Up a man at, uh, at a point in that game, unable to make the comeback giving up three goals at home. It is done for the Dutch. The Turkish are in to the European Championships. They have qualified automatically, the Turks, excuse me, as the best third-place team in qualifying with a one nothing win over Iceland. Selçuk Inans, I'm trying here, 89th-minute free-kick goal gives Turkey the win over Iceland. Remember, Iceland's already qualified, so they now proceed into the tournament as the top third-place team. 
the playoff draw is the pots are set for the playoff draw with those other third place teams. Everybody else who finished third place is now into a mix to go into the playoffs. Your top pot, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Hungary, Sweden, and Ukraine. That means they cannot play each other. They will be drawn against Denmark, Ireland, Norway, and Slovenia. So there's your eight teams still vying four spots in the European Championships, four spots to go. The U.S. men's national team, as mentioned, not going well. They followed up Saturday's CONCACAF Cup loss to Mexico with a one nothing loss to Costa Rica at Red Bull Arena last night. Joel Campbell did the honors for the Ticos, and the attendance was a paltry 9,200 people. Not uh, not good in, this, in the world of American soccer. The U- U.S. U23s, just to actually give some glimmer of hope, beat Canada 2 nothing at Rio Tinto Stadium to book a place in the playoff uh, for the 2016 Olympics against Colombia. There was some confusion. Originally, it was thought that there was going to be a one-off playoff in Rio in March of 2016 for this spot. Turns out, this is all from Leave You Bird on Twitter from SI, it turns out there's actually going to be a home and away aggregate series between the two countries, but also in March of 2016 adds a new wrinkle. Obviously, lots of work to do for uh, for Andy Herzog and company. It's a very young Olympic qualifying team. We'll see if any changes are made ahead of ahead of that uh, that tie with the Colombians. FIFA presidential candidate uh, Prince Ali bin Al Hussein has spoken out against the idea of delaying February's planned election, saying that a delay would further damage the credibility of the organization. The election is set for February 26th. This is obviously to replace Sepp Blatter, who says he would, uh, who has said he will stand down. Uh, there is an emergency meeting of FIFA executive committee, uh, the FIFA executive committee next week in which they will discuss potentially delaying the election. Now, this is all because of the turmoil. Michelle Platini suspended, Sepp Blatter suspended, numerous FIFA officials being suspended and or indicted. Things are not good at FIFA, but I agree with Prince Ali. You can't, you can't delay the election. It mainly makes you look worse. Speaking of South America, Commonwealth World Cup qualifying, Brazil bounces back from their opening round loss to Chile with a 3-1 win over Venezuela at home yesterday. Argentina settles for a goalless draw with Paraguay and now has just one point from their first two matches. The Albi Celeste were without uh, Lionel Messi and Sergio Aguero, both out with injury, obviously, that have a major impact on their ability to score goals. Elsewhere, Ecuador beating Bolivia 2-0. I watched a tiny bit of that game on BN Sport, and man, they were playing on, uh, they were playing on a pond there in Quito. Uh, not good playing conditions. Ecuadorian scored twice in the closing minutes to get the win. Uruguay, 3-0 over Colombia. Not great for the Colombian senior team at the moment either in World Cup qualifying. Peru losing at home in a thriller 3-4 to the defending South American champions, Chile. MLS Wednesday night, big set of matches, three matches tonight on the schedule all of them having something to do with the playoff picture in Major League Soccer. You've got Toronto facing New York's, uh, New York Red Bulls at home. Uh, the Red Bulls can clinch the top spot in the East if they can win away to Toronto or draw uh, with the Reds there. Uh, interesting note. Uh, I saw, uh, saw some, some mention on Twitter yesterday that uh, Sebastian Javinko, although he played a role in Italy's World Cup qualifying yesterday, was texting Toronto's staff saying he wanted to be involved in tonight's game. We'll see if Javinko 
after flying back from Europe, I imagine overnight will have anything to do with the proceedings against the Red Bulls this evening. FC Dallas can take a big step towards the West top seed with a win over Vancouver tonight, a win and a, and a win and a sporting plus galaxy lost on the weekend would give FC Dallas the top spot in the West. Seems unlikely that scenario will all play out this weekend and we may have to wait another week to see who gets that top spot, but it is here for FC Dallas if they can beat Vancouver tonight. RSL hosting Portland, Portland, Neither, uh, neither one of these teams can be eliminated, I don't believe. Portland, or, or secure their spot, Portland does need points desperately in the West. Right now they sit just outside the playoff places in sixth place, uh, but they are tied on points with the San Jose Earthquakes. They can also do some, if they can beat RSL and put a, a decent number up, they can actually do some damage towards that, uh, that goal differential. Um, although I believe first, uh, First tiebreaker in MLS is wins, so they would actually, if they won, they would take the tiebreaker uh, away from San Jose with San Jose set to play on the weekend against Sporting Kansas City. All right, we have run through most of the headlines. Got a gigantic show for you. Eric Gomez, he'll come up next. John Townsend following that. Good stuff on a Wednesday soccer morning. Wow. Hit us up at Soccer Morning. You got any thoughts on any of the things we talk about today? Always glad to get your opinions in. We'll talk to you in a second. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, here we go back on Soccer Morning. Grabbed a good friend of the show, Eric Gomez. Going to talk about Mexico and the triumphs of Mexico. Yes, this might be painful to uh, U.S. national team fan ears, but uh, alas, it is the state of things. Uh, You can find Eric on Twitter at EricGomez86. And uh, Eric, how are you, sir? Doing great, doing great. Uh, Last night was another... Late night for us covering Mexico up in uh, Toluca, but uh, it was pretty. It was uh, you know, despite the quality of the game, it was a pretty decent event. Yeah, you know, it was such, it's such a weird letdown after Saturday to have uh, friendlies follow up that matchup between the U.S. and Mexico, and obviously, you know, Mexico triumphant, winning the the Concacaf Cup and booking their place to the Confederations Cup and succeeding over in, uh, under interim head coach uh, Tuca Ferretti and then having to play Panama I I guess we'll I guess we can start last night and and if you take anything out of that game at all I mean you know Klinsman wants to put the US lost to Costa Rica on some sort of letdown apparently Mexico didn't have quite the same sort of letdown Yeah I think it was pretty obvious that you know, one of those two teams was going to have a victory lap, obviously, and the other one was going to have a lot letdown after Saturday. You were just um, planning kind of a, a weird Russian roulette if you were Mexico in that in that uh, in that regard, because Duca Ferretti would have had his last game no matter what against Panama. So I think it was it was pretty strange for Concacaf and for both federations to plan out their <laughs> their FIFA dates that way, but it all worked out for Mexico. You can't you can't, you can't blame him for that. 
Um, yeah, and we saw a game with a lot of spare parts on the Mexican side. You know, Chicharito, Rafa Marquez, Andres Guardado, none of those guys were available. They went back to Europe, so you had a couple of, uh, of pretty decent first-teamers like Carlos Vela and Jonathan Dos Santos, etc., but uh, mostly Liga MX guys facing off against Panama and Toluca. And again, Panama, they've been incredibly hard on Mexico, uh, I think, for the last couple of years. So it was a, it was a decent match in, in, in terms of the way that the opposition presented itself. And Mexico got, a, got another win. It was, like I said before, it was a victory lap for Tuca Ferretti. It was a pretty decent event for Mexican national team fans. And uh, we, were, we were switching our attention between that game and the U23 championship against Honduras, which was also a, a, a pretty hard-fought game. So, like you said before we, we got on the call, um, Mexico pretty much has every CONCACAF trophy right now, and yeah. they're going to go after another one in the U-17 World Cup uh, next week, yeah, so gonna, we'll see how that goes. I, I'm going to come to that, and we'll take, a, we'll take stock of, of the Mexican team heading into the U-17 World Cup, which is, uh, you know, the far reaches of of real truly competitive youth international soccer makes it tough we it's hard to even imagine you know which of those players are going to come good and be part of the senior team one day but we'll we'll come to that Tuka, by the way Tuka Freddy apparently he made a bet that that he, or he made a promise that if the if Mexico won on Saturday he shaved his mustache what's up with that yeah I mean it was weird wasn't it it was like kind of like, you know I think this is a an experience that's not necessarily endemic to Mexican kids, but I know a lot of a lot of your listeners probably had this happen. But it was kind of like the first time your dad came home mm-hmm. from the barbershop and had shaved his beard or his mustache you, off, and you that know was what? the first time you had ever seen him. Eric, it reminded it, it reminded me of Tom Selleck, and there were there have been moments in the past, like thirty <laughs> years, where Tom Selleck has been without mustache, and it does does not look right. You're right. Yeah, it's exactly. The, that's exactly the uh, the parameter by which we're going to be judging Tuca. Look, he's a Mexican Brazilian Tom Selleck. Um, yeah, it was, it was strange because I think I think for the entirety of, of of his career and and what we've what we've seen from Tuca Ferretti in the last thirty years in Mexico, it's a long, long time. He'd never shaven that that mustache off, so so he, he did that, and uh, he just looked weird. He didn't look like Tuca for for the longest well, stretch look, of time. And, uh, Every time the camera would pan to him, yeah, obviously, look, he's an interim guy. He knew what his he knew his time was going to be up after the Panama game last night. It's a free roll for him, and and to to be a, I mean, obviously there's camaraderie there. There's something working. He he got something to click, but now Mexico's got to move on. And before we before we come to some of the other things happening in the region, U twenty threes, U seventeen, and and the like, what does the transition to Juan Carlos Osorio look? I mean, first of all, was was Juan Carlos Osorio in house last night taking notes because that's what he does. Yeah, he was. He was. Um, he was a couple of. Uh, he was a couple of palcos away. From the um, from the press, uh, he was a couple of boxes away from the press, and he was taking notes. And we saw a lot of that red pen, which is not very good news <laughs> for the Mexican <laughs> players who were, who were playing last night. Some of you don't know, and of course, uh, Chicago and New York fans will know that uh, the blue pen means he's happy with what he sees, and the red pen means that he's not so happy with what he sees. So we saw a lot of the red pen last night. And um, I think the bar is set pretty high for him. Um, even though this was an interim job from Duca Ferretti, this went about as smoothly as it could have gone. And we saw a lot of uh, a lot of camera gesturing um, from Osorio. He did not seem very happy with what he saw 
um, there was a very, very pointed shot of him kind of yawning uh, during the game. So I think that's the kind of thing. And, and, and we all know that Osorio is a special character. He's a special kind of guy, uh, very studious, very intelligent, very um, not. He, I mean, I would kind of put him in that Klinsman mold in the way that he just doesn't really seem to care about what people think about him or what the press seems to think about him. But um, you can't really say that he's getting off on the right foot. He has another chance. I'm, I'm getting ready to go uh, to the Mexican national team base here in Mexico city in a couple of hours to see him uh, live for the first time. But uh, it, it's, it's weird how he just doesn't seem to care. And he's, he's not very media friendly at all. Uh, very awkward coming off the plane. And then Toluca, he was, he was, he seemed bored. He seemed bored. It was not the best game, but I mean, man, you're the, uh, you're the national team manager. Uh, show a little, a little more interest in that. So I think the fans are picking up on that. And the choice was not popular in itself, uh, hiring Osorio. So it's going to be a bit of a harder road for him than he would have anticipated, even with the caliber of team that he's inheriting and even with the psychological moment that he's inheriting in the Mexican national team. So it's going to be very interesting today. I've got a couple of questions ready for him later yeah. on. Uh, here's hoping the FMF lets me ask him. Uh, we expect about 100, 150 media members to be at that press conference. So it's going to be pretty wild. Do you do you do you think that uh, Osorio will have to wonder that if he has a misstep or two, and and you know, if for uh, for as well as things are going right now, the last World Cup cycle showed that you know Mexico uh, isn't always <laughs> just going to walk to to World Cup qualify. Is there a chance he's going to be looking over his shoulder and and whether or not Ferretti you know, declares himself ready to, to try again or to do it if necessary, there's definitely going to be a clamor. Well, Tuca did it. Bring Tuca back. Absolutely. He should look over his shoulder. I mean, CONCACAF has been murdered for Mexico over the last three, four World Cup cycles. Nothing has come easy for those national team managers. And we've seen a lot of heads roll. Uh, going back to 2001, that made Javier Aguirre's career. He stepped in late. Mexico was in danger of not making the World Cup. He, he put him through. Uh, and, of course, lost to Uni the United States in, in the 2002 World Cup. But then he did it again in 2009. <clears throat> so I think you do need a special, certain kind of coach to take you through CONCACAF if you are Mexico. Because we've seen a lot of other coaches with, with very distinguished records not make it. And uh, Osorio is definitely in that mold. He, he has a distinguished record in Colombia. He's coached some pretty important teams in Latin America and in MLS. He has experience with the Mexican game. <clears throat> it's going to be very difficult to see him struggle if indeed that is the case. So should he be looking over his shoulder? Yeah, because this time the FMF learned their lesson and they didn't even make that big of an economic commitment to him. I mean, he's making about half about half of the uh, amount of money that Miguel Herrera was making with the national team. He's making way less than Sven Goran Eriksson made. He's making way less than Javier Aguirre made the second time around, and he's making way less than Chepo made. All those guys were fired with the exception of Aguirre. Yeah. So if he gets off to a rough patch, I don't think there's going to be any t any type of patience for him, especially if he's not popular amongst the fans. Okay. Uh, Mexico, obviously, World Cup qualifying. 
Uh, in Concacaf begins next FIFA date. That's November 13th and 17th. Mexico hosting El Salvador to start things off. That's a it's about as soft as it gets unless Canada was coming in, Eric, and no offense to our Canadian <laughs> friends. And then going to San Pedro Sula, which is a difficult place to play. So he's going to he's going to have something of a test right off the bat. Yeah, and El Salvador is again one of those teams that uh you you look at them on paper and you say this is going to be pretty simple. Simple pickings for any of the the big teams in CONCACAF, Mexico, the United States, but they have a lot of fight in them. And I think you get this effect where Mexico and the United States are looked at as as the giants. Um, And and I think that definition and that perspective is coming more and more from other teams in the region and much less from fans and media within those countries. I know that in Mexico, that that term is kind of uh, ironic now to call Mexico and the United States the Giants of CONCACAF, but you get teams like El Salvador, you get teams like Honduras and Panama and, and, and Canada and whoever coming into those games, and they, they've got that extra 10-15% about them, uh, and the games have, have gotten a lot closer in, in recent years, so to have those first two games involve teams that have been pretty hard on Mexico, especially Honduras, uh, is a very interesting test for Osorio, and we all know the quirks of Juan Carlos Osorio. We know that we'll, we'll probably not see the same lineup against El Salvador than against Honduras. We know that we'll probably not see the same tactics against those two teams. And we know that we'll get these long rambling Bielsa-esque press conferences, uh, regardless of whether the game ended in a win, draw or loss. So I think these are really important. And I know that we're getting into a lot of uh, PR type talk now, but I think it's warranted because Mexico and the Mexican media have become increasingly dependent on coaches who make life a little bit easier for them and who make relating to them a little bit easier. There was a pretty long honeymoon period with Miguel Herrera because he's, he, he was just so confident. He was just so <clears throat> open with media and fans. Tuca Ferretti, we, we expected him to be his same gruff self, and, and he came in uh, to the Mexican national team with just a completely new attitude about him and everybody loved him and they want, they want to keep him. That's not going to happen, but we'll see what happens after, after a few months, uh, of, of Osorio. So to look at the coaches now with Mexico and the United States, with Juan Carlos Osorio and Jurgen Klinsmann, you have to wonder whether it's nice to have the backing of your federation, which Klinsmann definitely has and Osorio definitely has right now. But uh, is is it worth it to have a guy who's not a man of the people? You, you know, because as soon as, as he's not producing, we know what can happen, and, and we know the ugliness that can that can stem from that. All right, let's uh, let's move down a level. Let's talk about the U twenty threes. They uh, they win the the tournament, the Olympic qualifying tournament. They had already qualified by winning the semifinal, um, but here they are uh, lifting the trophy. They get a, an own goal from Brian Acosta, a goal from Victor Guzman. Uh, and they they win the thing, they cap it off, and I, I guess with the question that we talk, I mean, not only is it let's you know getting yourself into the Olympics, of course, Mexico is the defending champion of that tournament, but also the the talent that's there, the potential players that can move up. I mean, the the senior team, I'm not going to say it's loaded necessarily, Eric, but there's a lot of talent obviously at the top level in Mexico between Guardado and Chicharito and Layun and uh, and Herrera and everybody else. So. Are we seeing players that we should expect to come through in relatively short time frames, or are we seeing guys that are going to be on the fringes over the next couple of years? 
And again, we go back to Osorio and the way that he's managed um, youth at his clubs. I think so. I think we, we're going to see a couple of those guys suiting up for Mexico pretty soon. And, um, you know, you think about the types of guys who play for Mexico at the U23 level, the style of play that they develop. There's a couple of guys, Irving Lozano, he won the trophy for best player in that tournament. Uh, he already had an approach made by PSV earlier this summer. He, did, he ended up not going, but he's a, he's a fantastic talent. I think he's a guy who you have to look at in terms of carrying that mantle, um, the style of play that Mexico usually wants to employ, the Tecatito, Giovanni, Carlos Vela style of play, of you know guys who are able to run down the wings, guys who are able to cut inside and, and juke a couple of defenders and, and make a nice shot on goal. That's Irving Lozano in a nutshell. He's a fantastic talent, and I think that Pachuca will make a lot of money when they, when they eventually decide to sell him. you got to realize that there were some pretty high-profile names not on this team. So Mexico can actually get stronger without even invoking that over-23 rule at the Olympic Games. Jurgen Dom was not selected to that team. Tecatito Corona is available for that team, being that he's 22 years old. Chivas had about eight players who um, the U23 wanted for that pre-Olympic tournament roster. They ended up getting about four. So there's about half half a contingent from Chivas, a pretty good contingent, who they have still yet to call up for uh, other U23 commitments. So you're getting a lot of very interesting players coming up through that system. Erika, Erika Aguirre, who is the youngest player on that team um, from Monarcas Morelia, is, is a guy who I would definitely look at for the next 12 months, despite the fact that he's 18. And then you've got the goalkeepers. And Gibran Layud was very impressive in that tournament. Uh, a guy who is playing now for Tijuana, but uh, belongs, I think, to Cruz Azul. And, I mean, the fact that you had Raul Gudinha, who's, who's backing up Iker Casillas at Porto as your backup in the U23 <laughs> pre-Olympic tournament is pretty wild for Mexico. Mexico has always been that national team that develops six, eight, ten goalkeepers who are national team quality. And I think that this is where Mexico and the United States have had the most in common over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Raul Gudinho is, is a guy who many are, are touting as the goalkeeper of the future for Mexico for the next 15, 20 years. So you, t- you should definitely expect at least three or four of those top guys to come through the system and to play for Mexico in the coming months. So I know that a lot of the talk that we've had uh, regarding the, the United States men's national team in Mexico has been, look at the level of talent, look at the youth players, look at the guys who are being developed. Um, well, you know, that, that's not very... That's not very. Um, that's pretty disheartening for U.S. fans to to hear me talk about these guys because they are pretty special. So you know, there, there's more coming down the pipeline. Okay. For sure. This uh, this Mexico uh, this Mexico roster for the U23s. Um, I, I think it's probably fairly average in terms of the makeup and uh, ages. And you know what what is interesting, and just because we're always comparing, what's interesting to me is a lot of talk about the Americans taking a. A young squad to this tournament, um, guys that are uh, you know there's a 17 year old on the U.S. roster for for Christ's sake. I mean, we're talking about um, Cameron Carter Vickers being 17, Emerson Hyman's 19. There's a lot of uh, 18 and 20 year olds uh, on this team. Mexico, 
I imagine still has some guys that are in that age range between the U17 team and, and the, the U23s in that U20 range who are also pretty close. Did I lose Eric? I seem to have lost Eric. Uh, all right, well, I guess we'll, uh, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to try to get him back. Do you want to try to get him back? We seem to have lost the connection to Eric Gomez down in, uh, down in Mexico. Let's see if we can get him back on the, on the air and continue this discussion. Certainly want to go into the U-17s for Mexico going into a World Cup. The Americans will be down there as well. The, if you look at the, um, the group stage of that tournament, uh, as things kick off, uh, next week, actually, I think, uh, games start on Saturday. As a matter of fact, Eric, are you with me? Yeah. Okay. Apologies for that for that brief interruption. So I, I was asking about the the basically the U twenty age group for Mexico because again this U twenty three team went and got the job done. These are guys who have aged out of the U twenty group. There's got to be a group of players in that age range who were almost there as well. Yeah, there are. And uh, again, if you look at the 2011 team that won the U seventeen World Cup in Mexico, a lot of those guys have progressed to the to the uh, next levels of the youth development. So there's definitely a group of guys that are ready to take their place. And um, if you look at the guys that were going to the U-17 tournament in Chile, <clears throat> you'll see plenty of players who uh, are coming from the prestige programs in Mexico at the club level. And some of those teams have been replaced, actually. Uh, whereas in the 80s and the 90s, you could always count on teams like Pumas to develop youth players. Now it's Pachuca. Uh, you know, now it's uh, Tijuana to an extent. Now it's uh, Leon and uh, some of the old powers in America and Chivas. Uh, I've gotten a pretty good look at um, the Mexico City teams and their U-17 and their U-20 squads. And it's interesting to note that I think youth coaches are really trying to hammer a system a national team system more so than a club system into these players. Mm. And when you look at Cruz Azul and you look at Pumas and you look at America at the youth level, they're, they're developing, they're developing players who are ready for the national team and, 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 and might conflict with, you know, rosters that are laden with foreigners at the club level. And it, it doesn't really matter because they find a way to get out, even if it's not with their, with their current teams. So the interesting thing to note here is that they're developing a system. They're de really developing the Mexican style of play. And when they get to the national teams at the U-17, at the U-20, at the U-23 level, they're not overwhelmed. They, they know how to play together almost instantaneously. So there's definitely a group of guys who I would look at for these next tournaments and for these next uh, World Cup cycles at, at every level, at the U-20, at the U-17 level. Because now it's it's more about continuity. When we had the 2005 team, the U17 team that won the World Cup, uh, you only really had three players who, who stood out from that. And here we are 10 years later still talking about Carlos Vela, Giovanni Dos Santos, and Hector Moreno. But there was a lot of great talent on that team that, that just never got over that hump. 2011 team is not in that mold. You now have six, seven players who are making the jump to first division football and, and, and Europe and, and the national team. And I think as we, as we move along and that system becomes clearer and clearer and more easily developed for all those teams, you'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of players make the jump. 
All right, so the U seventeen. Let's let's talk about the U seventeen uh, World Cup in, in practical terms. Again, it's it's kicking off uh, very shortly. The seventeenth, the first game for the United States against uh, Nigeria. They've got a a group just to, to give people some information: Chile, Croatia, Nigeria, and the U.S. in Group A. Mexico, uh, a little bit tougher because uh, alongside Australia is Germany and Argentina in Group C. What are expectations? I mean, I imagine getting out of and look, third place teams can qualify for the knockout stage. So there is there is hope here of um you know the, there is there is a, a a path here that's not overly difficult. You don't necessarily have to finish above Germany or Argentina to make it, but there's got to be expectations because Mexico succeeded at the youth levels. Yeah, I agree with that, but you know again Jason, I think we sometimes uh look at U17 programs and U20 programs and we we equate them with the senior team level. Right. Yeah. If that were true, you know, Mexico would be competing for a World Cup title mm-hmm. every four years because you know Nigeria would be doing that. Nigeria has been amazing at the at the youth uh, World Cup level. <clears throat> they haven't been able to translate that into the senior team level. I think that happens inversely as well. So you know, you look at Mexico's group and you go, "Wow, you've got Germany and Argentina in that same group. Good luck." Um, you know, let's see, let's see if Germany and Argentina are, are, are developing players at the U17 level at this point in time who are able to, um, <clears throat> we're able to compete for them years later at the senior team level. I don't think that that has happened for them a lot. You know, a big deal was made out of Mexico beating Germany in that 2011 semifinal, I think, uh, for the U17 World Cup. You know, there were a lot of great stories on that team. You had Sammy Kadira's brother. You had the guys who were scouted out of Turkey when they were eight years old. And you had players who uh, eventually ended up with the United States. And, 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 and people uh, over at that program were very excited about. Four years later, I think Mexico has aged better in that group. So it's not – I think you have to take these groups and these pairings with a, with a grain of salt oh, absolutely. at yeah. the U-17 level. And Mexico should be expected to to go through because of of the way that they've they've put an emphasis on youth systems and and the way that they've developed these players. Um, but even if they don't, you know, let's say Mexico crashes out of the group stage, uh, there are always lessons that you're going to be learning at this at this stage and at this point in time. And I think that Mexico, with their two U17 World Cups, they've they've now gone through a a maturation and a process with the fans and the media. That tells you that, you know, even though you might be able to develop a Carlos Vela and a Giovanni dos Santos and a Nectar Moreno during the U17 process, that doesn't mean that it's going to carry over for you eight years later and you're going to be winning the World Cup at the senior level. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's an interesting tournament, no doubt. I think some teams might benefit a little bit more than others by uh, sending a strong contingent to that. But I think Mexico has gotten to the point where even if they win this tournament, it'll be it'll be a fantastic experience for them. Uh, you'll have tons of fans cheering for them when they come back. But um, what does it really do for you, Jason, when you get to the senior level? It doesn't really do anything for you. And it, it, even if you uh, are able to graduate, so to speak, five, six, seven players from that team, uh, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference. Yeah, they're, they're, not only is there a question of of the progression of these players, they, it's not a straight line from U seventeen success to senior team and 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 top level senior club success. You have differences in the way these countries take this tournament on, uh, Eric. As you said, you know Mexico's put an emphasis on this. Um, you know Germany knows for the most part that they're going to have talent on the senior level. 
these players might not necessarily be those players. And, and of course, there are a lot of countries who, um, who do put an emphasis on this, others who don't necessarily... Uh, aren't necessarily exerting the same sort of resources. So it, it, it that's something to consider as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would still think that uh, Mexico, you know, teams like Mexico and the United States, they have a lot, of, a lot to gain from these tournaments because at least now with Carlos Vela and Giovanni Dos Santos and Hector Moreno, and I go back to these guys again because they were they were pretty much that um, – that uh, that breaking point for Mexico and in, in, in moving from a team that had never won anything to a team that could at least claim a U-17 World Cup. Um, the experience of being there in a high-stakes game, I think, is pretty important for a young player, and that, that sort of thing definitely does carry over. And, you know, it, it's a place to be seen. If you're a 16-year-old kid, a 17-year-old kid who plays for, I don't know, Morelia or Tijuana, and uh, certain, you know, you get to play against Germany, and it turns out that the, you know, the top scout from Borussia Dortmund or from Bayern Munich is there. Yep. We've had instances where where players move on to Europe because of those tournaments. So I think there is a great value to Concacaf, to Mexico, to the United States to be at these type of tournaments and to take them seriously. But uh, to look at that and say, well, you know, we've got two. U17 World Cups and we won the the gold medal at the U23s last uh, last Olympics. We're ready for the big time. is it, definitely kind of a, a misnomer and, and something that doesn't happen at least for Mexico. Eric Gomez, Eric Gomez eighty six on Twitter. Go follow him. Eric, appreciate the time as as always. It's uh it's a it's a good time for for Mexico right now. We'll obviously see uh, how Juan Carlos Osorio does uh, taking that team into World Cup qualifying, and I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Hey, I'll be on when it's not a good time for the Mexican national team. <laughs> right. And I'll, and I'll be here hopefully when it's good for the U.S. national team. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Eric Gomez, good stuff. Thanks a lot, Eric. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to John Townsend. Speaking of things not being good for the United States of America, maybe we can figure out why that is right now. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning on a Wednesday. It is the Wednesday, both after the United States loses to Mexico on Saturday and they lose to Costa Rica last night at Red Bull Arena. This is obviously a time to take stock of uh, American soccer, where we stand as a soccer nation and where we're going and to take a look at some of that and have a discussion about the future of the game in this country. John Townsend joins us now. You find him on Twitter at John J O N underscore Townsend three. Hi, John. How are you? Good, Jason. How are you? Well, uh, you know, uh, spending my days now with lots of discussion about what's wrong with American soccer, and there's clearly a lot wrong with American soccer. I don't know where you'd like to start, but if we have one thing that uh, that you believe feeds into uh, some of the problems that that are facing the senior level team, certainly the the highest profile. Uh, example of American soccer, what would that be? I would say we need to shift our our attention toward um, 
a more bottoms up approach instead of a top down one in the system. So uh, what that means is we're starting to see the the evidence of problems that have been there since Jurgen Klinsmann has taken over, uh, maybe before. Um, and I would like to see more of a development centric approach um, at the youth level. So uh, I'm always pushing for better youth development initiatives. Um, and part of that is just come out with the 2015 player development mandates. Um, I think that's going to start to bear fruit, but uh, is it too late for this cycle? Probably. Um, okay. Well, the, you know, I'm, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I mean, obviously mandates and, and plans and uh, changes of focus and, and, and coaching uh, programs and, and all of those things are uh, sound great on paper, but I think that what we all recognize here as we talk about this this game and we watch our players come through from the youngest levels is how do we make those things actually matter in a practical manner yeah no that's a great it's, it's a great way to put it i think the uh we need a we need a sense of accountability um, i think if we're going to talk about the the senior most level um i think we got to start with the the head of the snake um in u.s soccer which is uh Sinel Gulati. i think he's got to be held responsible for putting um Jurgen Klinsmann in in position. If he if, if people think Jurgen Klinsmann is not the answer, um, I think the person who handed him the keys of the castle needs to be held accountable. I think Jurgen Klinsmann needs to be held accountable. Does that mean he needs to be fired? Uh, no, not really. To me, I think uh, bringing in another coach right now. Um, it depends on who we bring in. I think um, I would actually. It may sound radical, but I actually think that. If Jurgen Klinsmann is a technical director, I don't know if an American coach wants to work under that. Um, to be honest, I think. American players don't get Jurgen Klinsmann, and Jurgen Klinsmann doesn't get the American player. Okay, well, is that? I mean, is, are you going to lay blame in that situation, or are you just going to take that for what it is and imagine that we may need to be a country that that uh, that deals with ourselves in house for a while longer, the way that we did with uh, uh, certainly Samson Arena and Bradley? Well, I, I think that there's definitely some accountability that needs to be doled out here. I think uh, Klinsman needs to be held accountable. I think the the players, um, to some degree, need to be held accountable. Um, and 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 what I mean by sense of accountability is we need to realize that this is a uh, a systemic problem. Um, for the past since Klinsman came in to tenure, I've seen the denigration of the uh, the college game. Uh, I think a lot of people look at the college game and say, "Hey, you know, that's not what we want our players to play." And and, and partly they're correct. I mean, I'm a I'm a product of the college system and. It's, you know, we, we ask our, our young players at 20, the 22 to 18, 18, 22 age group to, to go play professionally. And that's the first time they're ever playing more than a three month season. Um, and, and it's the first time they're actually getting um, some sense of the professional game. And I think, you know, what we need, the, the American soccer system needs is to have reform at the college level, uh, at the youth level, which we're seeing. But we need to have a sense of accountability of, okay, so how are we preparing these players? So when they're 22 years old, they're ready to perform for a Jurgen Klinsmann or anyone else that is brought in. Now, to answer your question about keeping it in-house, um, I have no problem with an American coach taking the reins and, and implementing these things and, and changing the narrative. Um, but what I want to see is uh, more of a uh, – there's, there's an analogy that a coaching mentor of mine gave once is we live in a microwave society when we should live in a crockpot society. We need to let things um, – sure. Sure. And, and, and you know what I mean by that. But no, it's no, hard I, when you have results-driven businesses like soccer. It's, I, it's tough. I, 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 as much as I am guilty of responding viscerally to the events of right now and whatever happened most recently, certainly the way things have gone over the last four days, um, you know that hits me as a fan pretty hard. I, I also try my best and 
hey, you know what? People don't want to wait, John. They don't. They want they want things to happen now. They want the U.S. program. They want they look at the population of the country, the number of players that we have, all of these resources that are are, are admittedly vast, and they think that that should immediately become world class talent in uh, in in a cycle, and and that obviously isn't the way things are going. And I also think that part of our problem as a as a culture, and this is. You know, my expertise isn't in coaching. My expertise isn't in knowing what's going on at the at the youth levels in any real detail. But what I can say from the way that we perceive these things is that people imagine this is a straight line progression uh, from 1990 when we first went back to the World Cup after 50 years to a World Cup title and not only do they have different ideas of what that time frame should be, they are not accounting for the fact that we are likely to have regression at some point, that this isn't always going to be a straight line. But the question is whether or not we can identify as a soccer culture why that regression is happening, whether or not it's something that we're actively causing, or if there are ways to go about uh, smoothing out those bumps. Yeah, so I will be the first to admit that that 1999 class of U-17s in Bradenton, Florida, um, in residency, was a golden generation for American soccer. Um, I would go on to say that the 2002-2003 class with Michael Bradley, uh, Memo Gonzalez, uh, you know, th- those players were also Freddie Duke were supremely talented. Um, there's been subsequent classes that have been been talented, but I think what we failed to do as a country is get those players from that residency-type environment, that program, bringing them to fruition, and letting them succeed at professional level. Now, I am not going to pretend that the uh, this, this is a straight-line approach. It's definitely not. We are going to see, uh, I think, continued regression. I mean, we look at, you look at other countries who are struggling as well, but in the American game, um, our our fans tend to look at the results and not the process. And I think Jurgen Klinsmann is guilty of that. Um, one of the things that he did first, the first thing he did coming in, in my opinion, was he was very abrasive toward what was the system. Um, and and he had all the buzzwords, all the, he hit all these points. But what he didn't account for is for so long that served this country's soccer player, that served that journeyman approach that. Um, that unglamorous route to the professional level really served our national teams. And you saw it in the playing styles and in the World Cups, the, the never give up and all that stuff. But he wanted to bring in an attractive style. Well, that's going to take tons of time. And, any, and, and for him, uh, he's poisoned by his own promises and his first press conference. Um, and you know, for me, uh, as, a, as a critic of the American game, I'm also a product of the American game. And what I, what I like to think about is how can we best – reach a middle middle point here between fans wanting results soon and having the players in the system put in place to uh, enable that positive impact. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I wonder as well if we are guilty as a country of a, a couple. First of all, we're, we're we seem to be at, at cross purposes um, in a lot of this. And I, and I think you'll know what I mean here. It, it's it's one thing to 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 sort of rail against the system, to have problems with the way we operate, to 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 call for change, and it, it's it's another to sort of reject everything that we've done so far and reject everything that that's made American soccer what it is. There there's there's a a mentality that is we're doing everything wrong, which I think is actually detrimental to 
to American soccer. Yeah, there are some things that, that we have to change in order to catch up with the rest of the world, but we should at least admit, as you said, that the journeyman uh, way of going about becoming a professional player, the, the college system, being drafted. I mean, that 2002 World Cup team was made up of a bunch of guys who didn't go through youth academies at any, uh, any professional, of any professional stripe. Does that mean we should stick with that? No, not necessarily, but we should absolutely recognize that maybe the way that American soccer players are going to develop doesn't have to fall directly lockstep with the way the Dutch are doing it, the way the Spanish are doing it. Right. We definitely don't want to follow the Dutch. They've just uh, failed. No, of course, uh, no. But know, then again, that's, a, a, that's about results yeah. at the top level again. And exactly. we know so, those Dutch academies are still pumping up, ta- pumping, pumping out talent. So, yeah. So here, here's, a, here's a great way to look at this, Jason. Um, and, and I think you and I will agree on this. And, and this is an important thing that um, I would love to see uh, more more fans in in the American game. I, I always look at the the game in, in in little cycles here. And so since 2007, when the uh, U.S. Soccer um, Development Academy um, came in, everyone was enamored by um, the buzzwords. The you took this label elite premier and all that stuff, and you put it on the club side of things, and it, it didn't really change much initially. But we're starting to see the fruits of the academy system um, take root at the lower level now. What, what I didn't see in these last two games, and I haven't seen under Klinsman a lot, is um, a lot of players who went through that rugged uh, progression and development cycle that we just described, that journeyman college thing. What I saw in previous teams, though, was guys that are accustomed to not having a thing done for them. When you put a player into an academy, they are taken care of. They are given uh, everything they need. They are fed. They are, they are transported. Every- when, you, when you put a player through the college system – they're on maybe book vouchers. They're some are on full rides, some aren't. Some have to play on crappy frozen fields in in Midwest America where no one's watching. Some of them have to, um, you know, hope for a scholarship one time in their collegiate career. Some of them don't get drafted. And when those players make it to the professional level, not only are they battle hardened, they're also representing kind of the American story, which is. They're tough. They're willing to work, and they're they're geared toward winning. They're, remember, they're they're playing in a three month season that is all results driven. If you lose three games, you're automatically you know at risk of not making the NCAA tournament. So the, the the point I'm trying to make is, if we can get for a form at that college level, if we can embrace that system, because that's already the academy system we really need is that 18 to 22 group. The the the, the facilities are there. The coaching is there. We just need to put a season that's you know seven eight months in and and figure out a a, a solution. And to maybe, you know, and I think that would start to bear fruit because what I think a lot of Americans want to see is fight. They want to see the American teams under Klinsman not give up against Mexico, not, you know, back down. And, we, and, and we're used to that. And under Klinsman, he promised an attractive style of soccer. And it kind of, it kind of let, let a lot of people down. And I, and I don't disagree with what he tried to do, but I disagree with the way he tried to do it. Okay. Uh, but before we run out of time, John, I think we need to come to one of the crux of the arguments that happens to percolate, especially on Twitter. It leads to uh, to some dis-civil, uncivil discourse. And, and I, 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 no, it, I don't want to make this. I'm not, we're, we're not fighting here. We're discussing. And, and that's certainly important to me. I, but I'll ask the question. I get accused of being in the bag for MLS all the time. That's I mean, I'm certainly as critical of, of MLS as most people are on sort of act- actively decrying the existence of the league so my question to you because look i it's, it's not just that i remember a time when we didn't have a league i recognize that there are there are unique cir- set of circumstances in this country and i don't want 
rich guys dictating the game, but I certainly recognize that in the modern world, money drives so much of what's happening. We just need to apply gentle pressure or significant pressure, but in certain areas rather than sort of just foaming at the mouth about the way things operate. So I'm going to ask you bluntly, is MLS, is MLS a detriment to American soccer? It is not a detriment to American soccer. It is not the it, let, let, let me let me think about it this way. Would you want the uh, and, and this will answer the question? Do you think it's in the best interest of the Welsh FA to to pay Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey about six million pounds a year to come play in the League of Wales with journeymen on thirty grand a year to better uh, to better the system, or should they leave them at Real Madrid and Arsenal playing against the best competition they should get? Okay. That's what I ask about MLS. Like, sure. You brought all these guys back, and that- so I mean. Do I think it's a detriment in American soccer? No, I was at the first MLS game in the Spartan Stadium as a ball boy. I watched Eric when all the mega guy put it side netting. Uh, you know, I, I my father did photography for the Chicago Fire. I went to so many home games. I have great memories with MLS. However, at a certain point, like most most kids who grew up with the league, you wanted to see this this maturation that I think didn't happen. Okay, and and, what, and yeah, I mean, what, it's not what, it's not at the detriment of American soccer. Sure, I feel what, what I feel like there's a lot of Angst there. Okay, what, what I, I think MLS uh, has has helped the American soccer um, talent pool. I think it's given us something to watch. I think it could be better than it is, though. Okay, fair enough. I, I think what we're dealing with though is a problem of, and maybe this is cross purposes for a time that it'll eventually re- resolve itself, or you hope that it will resolve itself. Certainly, people running MLS imagine that one day it will. the 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 idea of bringing uh, top level American players back to MLS, paying them a, uh, more money than they would make anywhere else to them is you know a long-range plan that maybe this helps us get where we want to go with this league so that one day it is good enough for our players to be here and be at the top of their game so you essentially what we have is a disagreement over whether or not it's smart to take your lumps now by bringing Bradley and Dempsey and some of these guys Altidore whoever back to MLS or if you should, you know, as you said, leave them in Europe, certainly allow them to or, or don't give them the in- incentive to come back on big money so that they are scrapping for whatever they can in Europe because that makes the national team. But again, we're, we're, we're sort of just talking about different approaches to uh, hopefully the same resolution. Right. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, we all want the same thing, right? No matter where you come from in this game, if you follow the game in the American soccer circle, which is still marginalized, you want the same thing. You want success. Um, now, listen, uh, I played on the same club teams as a lot of the guys that are playing in MLS now. I understand what they're going through. They're humans. You know, if they if they're offered a contract they can't turn down, uh, I don't blame them. You know, this isn't this isn't about dehumanizing the MLS player. I mean, to get a payday like that, to get security like that, um, it, it, th- these are humans. And so, what we need to understand in this country is, okay, so if we look at MLS as a launching pad toward better leagues, I would rather we 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 prepare our players. Uh, we raise our baseline talent, so the top has to raise itself. Does that make sense? And so I'm not looking at these guys coming back as the main reason. It does play a part, you know. It does play a part. And anyone would see that um, Josie Altador would do, was doing so well in Holland. He came to England, and it's like, okay, well, that wasn't good. And then maybe in MLS, he's doing a little bit better. But you know, it's MLS is is actually the least of of what should be uh, people's worries right now. It has to be at the bottom. It has to be that fundamental change the coaching education's got to be better and you know we can't blame a league for existing um how it runs itself how who runs it yeah we can start to hold hold them accountable but i would love to see 
um, a more robust league system within the United States outside of MLS and, and MLS. MLS is able to do what it wants. I would love to see the other leagues rise up and, and push the talent, you know, because at the end of the day, Jason, we all want the same yeah, thing, which let's, is success. And let's, let's remember, and, uh, let, you know, let's just remember that this is a complicated thing. Oh, uh, you know, yes. my, my job is to sit here every day and try to distill it. But uh, look, it's almost impossible for any one person. Uh, in an hour a day or three hours a day, whatever you have available to 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 express these things in simple terms. There, there is no, I, I continue to say this, there is no magic solution to any of this. You can't wave a wand, fix one thing, and suddenly American soccer is is on the path to world domination. It, it's it's not going to work that way. And and while it's again, it's it's certainly fair to ask more of the people that are running our game in our country. Let's let's remember that that most people have the the best interests of the game at heart. Even if you think, well, those those greedy bastards running MLS, they, they also put a lot of money into that league to keep it going. Uh, again, the question of how it runs, the philosophical elements of it, we'll never agree on all of that. That's or or they'll never agree with with us as fans as as to how we want to see that go. I I think that some people waste energy again, foaming at the mouth rather than sort of not accepting but working working within what we've got or at least saying to themselves okay this is the practical reality let me see if i can be effective making my arguments in a way that doesn't necessarily alienate half the people let let's try that can we try that yeah no i, I agree you know and i think you know 10 15 years ago we didn't we weren't we didn't have a platform for these discussions Absolutely. so i mean i see that as progress itself there you, you know? go there you go john i got to wrap john townsend go follow him on twitter j o n underscore townsend 3 uh, these footy times. Uh, he's a coach and a writer, and he's uh, it's a good discussion. I appreciate appreciate the time, John. Good stuff. I appreciate having me on. Thanks. All right, there goes uh, John Townsend. Let's take a break. When we come back, take some of your phone calls on any of the things that have happened today. You want to talk about the Dutch? Let's talk about the Dutch. I don't want to dance on their graves necessarily, but my God, soccer morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Man, that song is unintentionally appropriate. Look at that. That's just amazing how that stuff works. Soccer Morning on a Wednesday. Phone lines now open 646-832-3909. Aaron is first up. Hello, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? Uh, uh, 24 hours since we talked. Um, <laughs> Can't get enough of me, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh the uh you know you want to talk about the dutch which i think would be great because i actually disagree with a lot of what john townsend said and uh but um you know if you look at the dutch right now they're exactly in that same position that we find ourselves in obviously we're not to the same level but you could argue you know robert van percy is you know josie altador right now and uh-huh. Iron robin is clint dempsey and you know and it's and if you don't make this massive switch to youth before these type of events happen where you get kind of stuck 
in your in your World Cup or your Euro qualifying cycle or Gold Cup and our you know, our our version of the Euro is the Gold Cup. Um, you know, basically you wind up losing years yeah. because those youth players have to kind of you know not just you know show up. I mean, I, I've always um, I think one of the worst um, things we do with with soccer is we try to treat it like all other sports. I've always thought of soccer is more like acting meaning the kind of way you have to hone a craft mm-hmm. the way you have to kind of go through the, you know, you have to earn your chops through, you know, theater. And, and I'm not saying once in a while, you know, someone doesn't fall out of the sky and become a superstar, but that can't be your strategy. If you're a movie studio no, or if no. you're a producer or a director, your strategy has to be to, to depend on, you know, arguably the Academy, you know, the, you know, the theater and, and, and the, and the more kind of technical, you know, indie movie, well, that's, that's et cetera. Cer- and that, the Dutch that, do that really well. Right. That, 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 that's certainly the, the, Sorry. that's, well, I just want to throw in here. That's certainly the long, like, that's certainly the long view approach, the necessary long view approach. And I think what John and I sort of uh, approached it, looked at, drilled down on is that American soccer, and I, and I, I've thrown this theory out there before. I really believe that we were, we were sort of spoiled by that class of 99, which he called a golden generation, which in my mind just means that it's sort of remarkable that those players all came together at that time. Does it mean that Braden? I kind of call it a bronze generation. Okay, I sure, mean, sure. Fair, fair. Well, uh, relatively speaking, it's an American golden generation, meaning yeah. that it's the best we've had to this point. Um, why not? Exactly. Give, why not give them that, that, that credit? But, you know, it's not that Bradenton or our systems or our clubs uh, didn't have something to do with the way those players developed. They certainly did. But at the same time, it was almost more happenstance that we got a Donovan and an Yewu, a Beckerman, uh, whoever. I mean, the, that, that group in general, the Bobby Convies, th- that group was, so, uh, but Convy was later, but that group was certainly, and even, even that 2002 team and the makeup of that team with McBride and O'Brien and, uh, and Claudio Reyna, th- these guys were, I don't know, unique in an American, in an American sense in that they were, they were punching above the American weight. So now what we've established, yeah. what we've established over the course of the last decade and a half is we've become more entrenched in trying to develop those players. And I don't know that it's that we're doing it entirely wrong. It's just that there's a necessary leveling off where we have more of them they're not reaching that same level and again we were sort of spoiled by that i, I don't know why i mean it, it's, it's I, I, I would argue that that we didn't have as many institutions that pulled at players right okay and i mean really the, i mean the truth was i mean high school soccer is a joke now but it, it was the it was the only thing outside of your kind of regional club team and then odp your state ODP kind of was like the Dutch. I'm not saying quite like the Dutch. It was more like a Dutch, you know, colony, but it was more like a Dutch system where you kind of pull, pooled the best players once a year and they kind of went away for, you know, five days to two weeks or three weeks. And then college was this system that yeah. was getting ramped up. And to get ramped up, you had to bring in either two kinds of people, ex-football coaches what? who failed, American football coaches, and then, and then you replaced them with soccer guys. And in the beginning, a lot of them were European or South American. Right. And with them, they kind of brought their other players. I think what's gone on is that's kind of the Silicon Valley mode of starting soccer in America. And then once 
you know, NCAA took over. I'm not saying they weren't NCAA before, but you know what I mean. Once it became kind of part of the AD system, not this weird foreigner kind of concept, then you got this kind of another internal portfolio piece you have to meet a metric on. And, you know, if you look at the deg- at the complete implosion of high school and college soccer, which people say, oh, big deal, you're sucking out of yeah the eight most important years out of development and forget about soccer players. What if you had a violinist yeah. and they had to go do high school, you know, violin well, class well, and then college uh, violin class. Would they, would they make anyone symphony orchestra? Well, I, I think what, they just wouldn't. What, what's occurring to me is, is in, and again, not that those were better systems in terms of producing players in a, uh, you know, in a theoretical sense, but what we had there in the late nineties, early two, we had a very clear path. This is how it worked. You were, you, you, you yeah, there, there were only so many John, o, there were only a few John O'Briens, the guys who went overseas, joined an academy, came through it that way. Yep. Most of these guys, and Landon Donovan was unique too, but most of these guys were, as you said, high school, club soccer, high school soccer, college soccer, professional soccer, and it, it, it streamlined that process. Now the, the, it was like a funnel and the funnel was, was relatively th- narrow at the bottom, but we were, extracting the most out of this group because there were only so many places to focus. We were able to identify in, in, in very clear areas. Okay. This is a place I look. This is a place I look. This is a place I look. And now we got this talent. Now we have, we have opened up. We have opened up this. this The the problem though is that, is that we were always extracting individual units. And then I go back to to the other arts because I really do believe in the concept that football is art, you know, soccer is art because of the way you have to choreograph or the, well, when it's done right, it's, it's highly choreographed, you know, whether it's Barcelona or Bayern Munich, whatever. And, you know, at the most extreme, you know, edges like a New York symphony orchestra. And, and the problem is, is when you put, you know, a first, second, third chair, you know, rock stars together, that doesn't mean the violin section is going to play well. Right. Arguably it won't. There right. won't be any chemistry there. And, and the problem is, is when we pick all these kind of individuals without understanding what are we really trying to build? Are we trying to build a four-three-three in the United States, and for the next decade we go all in and we go four-three-three everywhere? And if you don't implement four-three-three in your club or in your high school or your college, you lose some of this national money or some of the support, so that it bends everybody towards some 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 generic outcomes. So yeah. you can get a destroyer midfielder. So you can get a, a certain type of flanking player. And see, most of the world, and I, I actually think Costa Rica last night, we did great against Costa Rica. Everyone likes, I mean, I'm not saying we played great, but we did great as a result. And the reason is, Costa Rica's goalkeeper is the Real Madrid goalkeeper. All right? You know, there's no one, except for Chicharito, who made the roster, there's no one in out of 500 million people in North America who could make Real Madrid's team, except, you know, uh, um, Taylor Navas, and he starts for them. Yeah. So the idea that we lose one nil against Real Madrid's goalkeeper okay. and a bunch of pretty solid squad players, including a couple others that play for Everton and Arsenal, sure. and Campbell, etc. I think we did great with a younger roster. We turned it over fifty thousand times, like we always do. But but basically, you know, we it's like what we do is like pile on in America when we don't get results in soccer, and that works. I don't know if it works, but we're used to it in other sports, but soccer is such a developmental game. It requires so many years. I go back to I go back to theater and yeah. acting and music. 
because it's a lot more like that than it is like baseball or football. I'm not saying hitting in baseball or pitching is kind of like that. But, Aaron, I but got it, it's it, it's like you know. Sorry. No, I just I got I got to wrap you up because I got some other people waiting and we're running out of time. So I mean, yep. it, it's it's a great discussion. It's, and and again, I, I gotta let you go. I think that there's something to be said for. The, the efficiency level. I mean, it's a word I come back to many times when we talk about developing players. We, we may not been, have been efficient to the point of world class talent in the late nineties, early two thousands, but what we were is very narrowly focused on a couple of areas. It's always available to us. Now we've, again, we've opened up a fire hose and, and because of that, it's more difficult to pick out, um, you know, to pick out those elements. And, and again, he may, Aaron makes a good point about the the or John made a good point about the path of the player, how they have to work, what they have to work for. You know, a lot of talk about players' heads getting big, and maybe that's part of it too. I, I don't know. Lots of issues here. Allen in Kansas City you're on the air. You know, it's interesting. I, over the past week, all I hear is um, we don't have world class talent. You know, we don't have anything developed. And then I look at I look back at some of the coaches in MLS. And I, I wonder if we place somebody such as a Peter Vermees and they either the technical director role or the head coach role and see the things that he's done in Kansas City, where he has scouted local talent and worked with them and turned Matt Beasler into one of the best defenders in uh, North America. He's taken Graham Zusi, um, right out of college, somebody that nobody was really trying to draft and turn him into who he was. He's developed a lot of local kids into playing for a club-level team. He's put out four to five uh, uh, individuals that he recruited this year or individuals that were maybe not in their prime, but has turned them around. He definitely has impacted individuals like Betty Philhaber, who was, you know, quite frankly, kind of washed up when he was with the New England Revolution. He was overweight, not playing very well, mm -hmm. and he's turned him into an MVP. So, mm -hmm. you know, I disagree with this this notion that, that we can't turn things around. And maybe it's somebody like Peter Vermees that we need in the team that doesn't have to have stars, but can put together a good, cohesive team that can win things. Yeah, I, and that's I, what he's done in Kansas City. I, I don't know if Peter Vermees is the answer. He's the name that comes to mind most easily for me, Alan. I, I think that I, I don't agree that the cupboard is bare. And when I say that, what I mean is I don't, I don't agree that there isn't something in, a, in the American talent pool that can get us back to where we want to go. The question is, is how do you take that, that talent out of the cupboard and hone it into something that works together as a unit that works together within a system that you're teaching, uh, you know, whether or not we have one national curriculum or not, which by the way, sounds almost impossible because of the individual nature of Americans in general. But you know, th th there's something there, Alan, uh, I got to run, but anything else before I let you go? No, man, I'm just looking forward to MLS and tired of talking about the National uh, Fair team. enough. Uh, fair enough. Appreciate it. Uh, let's uh, let's hope that this last call isn't a gloating call. <laughs> My man, Eddie in Brooklyn, what's up? Yeah, it was, uh, I, I kind of want to respond to the last two callers now real quick. Um, well, you guys can't hire Peter Vermees because he's kind of a prick. Sure. You after Klinsman, you want a likable guy as as the coach. I would I would look at Jesse Marsh after he wins the double this year. He'd be a great candidate. Okay. Um, right. And and then um, the whole you, the, the caller before we said that you guys did good against Costa Rica. Second half, you guys were absolute trash. The only reason why it was one nothing is because a couple of you know last line blocks and Urena is absolutely worthless as a striker. And he tried to make a point about Navas. We also had guys like Matarita, David Guzman, David Vega. You know, guys that are in their young twenties playing in the local leagues in Costa Rica. So for yeah, for every Navas that we have. We've also done a really good job 
since the World Cup of incorporating a lot of younger local guys along with our core so we have something to push for in 2018 and we're not relying on DeMarcus Beasley or Kyle Beckerman in a very big game. So it's just a, a, a difference in philosophy. Why are you showing up on my – why are you coming on my show to kick me while I'm down, Eddie? Why you got to do that, man? I, 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 I'm actually no, – I'm just responding to the callers. I actually <laughs> want to tell you how depressing your show has been for the last two days. And I was trying to change it up by talking about some good stuff like okay. most pros right. in New York. Yeah, no, no. Look, uh, the uh, and that's the thing. I mean, it's not all bad. Let's be let's be fair about this. Uh, the national team isn't going well right now uh, for the United States, and there's bad results and everything else. But man, there's some good soccer to be played. There's some good soccer. To you're you're uh, Toronto can clinch against your boys tonight. You think that's going to happen? Um, if I don't think Javinko is going to actually play, no, I don't think so. Either. Josie, I don't. I don't think Josie will play. So um, they're they're bare of now they're going to be bare moving forward. They're bare under the back line. I kind of liken this game to 2013 when we had to travel to Houston and we were like on the verge of, of getting the supporter shield. I kind of see some parallels between these two games, and I kind of feel like we pull it out. Uh, Toronto can't defend to begin with, but if they can't attack, also it, it, yeah. you know I, I can see the three points. I'm not. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. I'm no, not sure, sure. And look, talk me out of it. Stranger things have happened, but yeah, when when you're talking about a Toronto team that's going to be relying on uh, on Osorio and, and and Robbie Finley to be the 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 league, and I don't know Robert Ernst, is he who's wait oh Hercules Gomez he should be playing tonight. Hopefully he's oh, playing. Want to see yeah. Herc on the field? Um, no, no yeah, offense. Please, Gomez's Twitter game is better than his actual game. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, uh, twi- uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, this, um, you know, it, it's an interesting end to the season. All right, I don't know. I, I kind of railroaded you there. I don't know if that's where you wanted to go. What else you got before I, before I wrap this up? We can win. Do you think we win the Shield by Sunday? If, if you had a bet for it right now, that would put us at 60 points, which is the max FC Dallas could get, and they have Vancouver tonight. Yeah. Do you think the Rebels clinch the Shield by Sunday? I think it's probably more likely than not at this point. Uh, you've got um, FC Dallas in pole position because they've got a game at hand, right? Right now. I mean, that game is tonight. But... No, no, they, no wait, they're, they're, three points, they're three points back if we have the same amount of games. Played. No, no, I meant on the West. So, yeah, I meant in the West. So they... They've got they they've got the pole position in the West, uh, but they the, they can they can only max out at what? What'd you say? What, they can only max out at sixty, right? And and tiebreaker yeah. is is going to be wins, so that that would put Which them. They would be tied. Yeah, uh, everything would be tied. And uh, it, what's the tiebreaker? Which we have a better one. What is it? Goal differential? Yeah, I, I think probably because yeah. because L A L A is behind the curve because of games. Uh, Vancouver behind the cur- behind the curve because because of, of games, and and if the Red Bulls can get to sixty, yeah. Then it could be. It could be done. They've been they've been my they've been my favorite for a while now, Eddie. So I, I expect them to wrap it up. All right. I appreciate it, man. Good there call. You go. There you go. Eddie in Brooklyn. He's uh look, you know, uh he's a Costa Rica fan. They get to win last night. Concaf getting very, very interesting these days. Mexico are the Kings. The United States are trying to figure out exactly how to play soccer again. Maybe one day we'll we'll get there. Lots of issues in the world of American soccer. It is what it is. Thank you very much to Eric Gomez and John Townsend. Good show today. Uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Soccer Morning, and uh, we'll talk to you guys. Uh, we'll talk to you guys tomorrow, Thursday. Hopefully, Thursday feels better than Wednesday. That's really loud. Let me get that down. Hopefully, Thursday feels better than Wednesday. We can head into a good weekend. Lots of MLS tonight on the weekend. NASL coming down the wire. International soccer, European qualifiers. 
Premier League club soccer's back in Europe. We'll talk about all of it later. What I put my heart on every cursive letter. Tell me why the hell no one is here. Tell me what to do to make it all feel better. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.